good? Awesome. Well, Arthur, I thought it was great today. Man, um, you know, really that's a good tag team. And I'm sure that everything that we're sharing is all going to fit together. But following up on what I was talking about last night, um, you know, I was talking about how to be a success. I tried to redefine success as not being, you know, your fame and your prosperity, but it's just knowing God and then doing what God tells you to do, following him instead of you trying to get God to follow you and do your thing. What I want to start with is, is kind of a continuation of that. And I'm going to talk about some small people who were big successes, which doesn't sound right. But again, it's trying to redefine what success is. Success is knowing God and following God. And you know, if it wasn't for some people who never get the recognition and stuff, uh, the people who do make the big splashes and get all of the attention wouldn't be able to do what they had done. Let's look over here in Exodus chapter two. And you know, as I started thinking about this, there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples. I just chose to pick a few people here and talk about this. But over in Exodus uh, chapter two, let's look in uh, verse one. It says, and there went a man of the house of Levi and took uh, to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an, she may, uh, took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to wit or to know what would be done to him. You know, this is, seems like a small thing, but if it hadn't have been for Jochebed, the mother of Moses, who had a relationship with God, you know, it, she was commanded by the Pharaoh to kill any male child. And this could have cost her her life. And yet she believed God. She had a relationship with God to where what God said about her was more important than her own life, than what anybody else said. And she was willing to put her life at risk. And she made this little ark and put Moses in it. And if it hadn't been for Jochebed doing that and trusting God, did you know we would have never had Moses? We would have never had the story of the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. And again, we talk about Moses and what a great man he was. But here is a woman that is relatively insignificant compared to her son, but her son, everything that happened to him happened because of what Jochebed did. You know, we often forget that, but you know, who knows all of the things that go on? Who knows all of the things that are done? My, my dad, uh, he died when I was 12 years old. And when uh, Daniel was up here singing this morning, he was singing How Great Thou Art. And that was my dad's favorite song. And you know, my dad, he, uh, he was the chairman of the deacons. He actually died, I think, the year that I was born, right around there, either the year or the year after I was born. And he was raised from the dead. He was, in, uh, he was the very first person that ever had a human artery transplant from his heart to his knee. He had a human artery transplanted and uh, it, he was the 50th person that they had done this surgery on and the very first one to live. And he actually died and they wheeled him out into the uh, um, hallway of the hospital 
And our little Baptist church, Fred Harris, who was our pastor at that time, had the people together praying for my dad. And it was two o'clock in the morning. And he just said, well, either God's answered our prayers or he hadn't. I'm going home. He says, I'm through. And at two o'clock, my dad was out there with a sheet over him and an, an orderly was pushing him down the hallway and he just kicked the sheet off and sat up. And the orderly wet his pants right there. And my dad was raised from the dead. And, uh, but he was invalid because they didn't understand about healing. And so he was invalid. He wasn't invalid. He could get him walk around, but he was always weak. Like he could never go out and play with us or do anything. He had a, a lounge chair and a couch in his office and he took a nap every day. And when he came home, he'd just have to lay there all the time. They had cut him open from his heart to his knees. So his, uh, he had to wear a girdle all of the time because he couldn't hold his stomach in. All of the muscles had been cut and things like this. And he was on a special diet. So anyway, he was sick my whole time that I was growing up and he died and stayed dead when I was 12 years old. And, um, his favorite song was how great thou art. And I remember as a 12 year old boy, I was standing there at his funeral. I was on the front row and they had the casket there and I was looking at his body and the preacher was up there singing how great thou art. And it seemed like such a contradiction to me about how great God was, and yet here's my dad died, and I prayed for him for six months, and that he'd be raised up, and you know that he'd get over this, and nothing seemed to work. And I remember just sitting there, a twelve-year-old kid. This shows you how easy it is, man. I didn't understand anything, but I just thought, God, if you're really great, reveal yourself to me, show me what you want to do for my life. I mean, just to. I remember praying that just like it was yesterday. It was 52 years ago. And you know what? God showed up big time. And God revealed himself to me. And as Daniel was singing that, I was just thinking about all that God has done and how he's changed my life and how everything has happened. And it all came through what we've been talking about. And you know what? My dad is a person, most of you have never heard of him, never will hear of him, but I guarantee you he had a big influence on my life. And as far as I know, he did what God called him to do. Just like Jochebed with Moses. And we often only put significance on people if they get famous and if they have all of these things about them. But I can guarantee you there's probably every man in here can look back at somebody in your life that touched your life. I just had a guy contact me off of uh, television. He saw me on television and his mom and dad... When my dad died, this guy, Gene Price, was an uh, airline pilot for Delta Airlines, and he went to our church, and uh, he was, uh, I don't know, he was my Sunday school teacher, and he was a hard guy. He was just hard. He didn't tolerate anything. Boy, he would just as soon whoop you as look at you. He was a tough guy, and he, would, he didn't tolerate stuff. But when my dad died, he took me under his wings. I remember him taking me up in a, a uh, I forgot what they call it now, but anyway, it was a prop plane and we flew from Love Field to Eamon Carter Field, first time I ever went flying. And he just began to start taking me under his wings and he had an impact on me. And I remember, uh, I couldn't tell you now how many years ago, but maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I just went and looked him up and went over to his house and just started thanking him for the way that God, that he spoke into my life and the way that he 
uh, began to start doing things in my life. And he, he was really, uh, he was an older guy. He was not feeling good at the time and he felt uh, bad about it. And he was just saying, I don't know that my life has ever counted. I've never done anything. And I was just telling him, I said, Mr. Price, you changed my life. You impacted me. And he was feeling like I've never done anything significant. And yet I can guarantee you that man had a huge impact on my life. I remember another guy who was the youth director of our church. And this guy was going to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And when my dad died, this guy had to go to class at 8 o'clock every day. But he got up every single morning, seven days a week. And at 5 o'clock, we went out and played tennis from 5 o'clock till 7 o'clock. And not only me, but my brother, he got into some trouble. I don't know exactly what it was. My brother's never told me, but it was bad. My brother went to jail a couple of times, so it was fairly bad. And, uh, but anyway, he was in some crisis situation. And I remember him going over to this youth director's house and he spent a whole week with him just trying to get help. And, and I didn't know this until 30 years later, I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I looked this guy up and was visiting with him. And he told me, he says, you know, I flunked out of seminary because that was finals. And he says, I didn't have any time to do all of my finals and stuff. And, uh, and he just gave that time to my brother and made a difference in, my, in our lives. And you know what? People, again, they see me or something on television and they think, well, look what you've done. All of these other people that many of you don't know, man, they did. They were in the place that God had them. They made an impact on me. And I bet you every one of you can look at somebody who has impacted your life. And so I'm just trying to redefine that sometimes we only look at people who have a lot of recognition. But you know, success is knowing God and enjoying Him, being a living sacrifice and fulfilling His plan. And God had people placed in my life that when my dad died, they, they made a difference in my life. And you know, I can truthfully say that I've never gone through a period of rebellion in my life. And it's not because I'm all that good. It's because God had people around me who made a difference in my life. And some of you are the people that God wants to use like that. There's people within your realm of influence and you just need to reevaluate some things and recognize that you do not have to be behind the pulpit to be serving God. There are people that God wants you to touch right now. And um, there's just a lot of examples of this in scripture. Uh, here's another one is Joseph in um, Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 and 2. If you'd put that up there, Ryan, or whoever's doing that. I guess it's Ryan. And Joseph was uh, brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the uh, hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph and he was a prosperous man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now notice, this is after Joseph was sold into slavery. And the way that they sold slaves was, you know, you were buying property and you needed to see if what you were buying was good. So they would strip you naked. Joseph was standing there absolutely, totally naked. And here's Potiphar standing there looking at him, inspecting the wares that he's going to buy. And Potiphar was draped in, you know, the fanciest clothes, the nicest everything. And God looked at them and said, 
Joseph is a prosperous man. You know what? You got to redefine prosperity. You got to redefine success to see a man humiliated, sold into a foreign country, rejected by his brothers, stripped naked, being sold as a slave. And God said he was a prosperous man. Prosperity is not about all of the things that you have. It's about what you have on the inside. It's about personal relationship with God. You know, I praise God that, man, in America, we fought a war and and freed the slaves. I think that was a godly thing to do. I'm not advocating slavery. But did you know that there were some blacks that in the United States, I, I used to read the writings of John Jasper. He was a preacher. And I tell you what, he, he was powerful. I've read many of his sermons and he was a slave. And that man was freer than most of his descendants are today. He knew God. He loved God. Man, he was, he was full of the joy of the Lord, talking about the Lord. And I guarantee you, we evaluate things so carnally today. And we look at people. I took a pastor one time over to uh, Romania and Poland, and this is before the Iron Curtain came down. And I mean, the KGB followed us. We had to hide and switch cars and do different things. And uh, it was it was amazing. And when we got over there, this pastor was with me, and he was seeing these people. And he says, "Man, we got to start teaching them about freedom and about all of these things." And I said, I said, you have totally missed it. I said, these people are freer than you've ever thought about being. There was a couple that we went in their home in Romania and they had both been teachers and professors and then they got born again. And when they got born again, they got kicked out of the university and they had to take just whatever job they could take. And they were ostracized and the children from the communist party leaders family beat their kids up on a regular basis. Their daughter would come home black and blue. They lived in a home that they would turn off their electricity during the winter because they were Christians and they weren't worth getting the electricity. And they had an inch of ice on the ceiling, the walls, the floor. They didn't have any money to get gas. And so they would take the battery out of their car and run one little light so that this girl could study. And they were just, the man was arrested and beaten many times. And the way that I meant them was I was with them the, the month after Ceausescu was killed. And they had been the secret contact for the guy that snuck us in. And they would leave notes in the woods. And these are the people that would, they would smuggle the Bibles in through. And we, uh, right after Ceausescu was killed, we took 10,000 Bibles to Romania the month after, and it had been against the law to have a Bible. And um, we took these 10,000 Bibles in, and we contacted a number of Pentecostal churches, and none of them wanted the Bibles. They said, why would anybody want a Bible? But this was a Baptist couple. And when we told them we had 10,000 Bibles, they said, we'll take them. And so for the first time, this man who had been taking us in for all of these years, he went to meet the contact. He had never meant them. All they'd ever done was leave notes. And so we met, we went to their house. They had built their own house because all of the houses in Romania were bugged and they eavesdropped on you. So they built their own house so that it wouldn't be bugged and stuff. And we were there and we meant them and we're visiting with them. And, uh, this guy that was the contact, he says, I've offered to bring you to the States many times. And there was people that would have sponsored you and you could have escaped communism. 
says, why didn't you ever do it? And I never will forget this woman. She says, you Americans. She says, you think you got to have money and all of these things to be happy. She says, why would we want to leave Romania? <laughs> They'd only been starved to death. They'd only had their, you know, their heat turned off and they had an inch of ice on the inside. Their daughter was beaten. The husband was arrested every six months and put in jail and stuff. Why would we want to leave Romania? Says, we love these people. Who would reach them? Did you know for most of us, that wouldn't even be a thought. It's all about, man, you've got to take care of yourself and the most comfort and all of these things. But these people had a totally different perspective. For them, success was knowing God and making him known. And they smuggled hundreds of thousands of Bibles into Romania and did these things. We we brought them uh, one deal of sausage that was this long and two uh, deals of ham that we bought and we smuggled them in to the country. It's a long story how we got through the border guard with that. But we brought them two deals of sausage and, and it was cheese, one deal of cheese. And the woman broke down and cried. That was over a year's worth of meat and cheese for them. Their diet was pig lard spread on bread. And sometimes they would just eat it straight. Sometimes they would fry it. And that's all they ate was bread and pig lard. That's what they ate. They were all overweight and they were fat. The average life expectancy was about 55. And they were just happy. She says, why would we want to go anywhere else? God is so good. This is where God has us. What would happen to the people in Romania if we left? Man, that's awesome. I tell you what, people like that are going to shine brighter when they stand before the Lord than many people who have made a name for themselves, who are the movers and the shakers, you know, the who's who in America, people like that are going to shine. And I tell you, we just need to reevaluate some things. Here was Joseph standing stripped naked and God says, that's a prosperous man. You know why? Because he had a relationship with God. And he was following what God told him to do. And I'm not going to take the time today to teach on Joseph, but Joseph is one of my favorite characters. And he never did rebel at God. Some people will interpret what he did with his brothers as he was bitter and he was getting even with them by making them bow down and go through all of these things. But I have a totally different take on that. What he was doing, he had seen, God had given him a vision of his brothers voluntarily on their own bowing down to him and submitting. And he knew that these were still evil men. You know, Judah, the guy who uh, was the leader of the tribe of Judah, this man committed incest with his daughter-in-law and nearly killed her for, for his incest. And uh, all of the others, Simeon and Levi, went in and killed hundreds and hundreds of men because one guy had abused their daughter, Diana, and they went in and killed an entire city and just butchered them and wiped them out. These were evil, vile men. And that's the reason they rose up and sold Joseph into slavery. And what he was doing when he saw them, he knew God had put them him in a position to bring them to the end of themselves and to get them out of doing their own thing. And so the things that he did to them wasn't in vengeance and bitterness. It was to bring them to the end of themselves and to 
uh, see these, make these guys see that the way they were living wasn't right. And so he just uh, brought them to the end of themselves. They finally humbled themselves and they said, this is justice. This is what we did to our brother. And the moment that they repented, he revealed himself to them. He was kind to them. They thought that when uh, their father uh, Israel died, that surely Joseph was going to take out vengeance on them. You can read that in the 50th chapter of Genesis. And, and Joseph came out and says, and he cried. And he says, you don't understand. He says, he's, I've never been bitter at you. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life the way that it is today. Joseph wasn't venting and hurting people. Joseph had a relationship with God and he had a purpose for his life. And even when he got thrown in prison, did you know that Joseph was there unjustly? And yet he started ministering to people and he was so faithful that the jailer made him the head over all of the prison. And if anybody escaped from prison, the jailer was put to death. This jailer had so much faith in Joseph that he was willing to put his life in Joseph's hands because he realized that Joseph had a relationship with God. And Joseph went in and saw the butler and the baker. And he says, what's the matter with you? Why are you so sad today? They were in prison. Most people think, why aren't you sad? Joseph had changed the whole, the whole uh, complexion of that prison. Joseph was ministering to people in such a way that people in prison were happy. And when somebody was sad, it was an exception. Did you know what? Joseph was a success in Potiphar's house. He was a success in prison. He didn't wait to become a success when he got before Pharaoh. He had a relationship with God and wherever he was, he was just doing what God called him to do. And that's a success. Joseph was a prosperous man when he was standing there stripped naked. He didn't wait until he became ruler all of e over all of Egypt. And that's when he became a prosperous man. See, as long as you think prosperity and success is all of these external things and you judge your success by all of these things, you'll never obtain it because it's, it's a relationship with God. Godly success is a relationship with God and having peace in your heart and being led by God and just following God. And if God tells you to do something relatively small in the sight of people, you are an absolute success. If he tells you to do something big, that's great. But it's not about all of these other things. And when you look at it this way, you know, it gives you a security too. Because success is not something that can be taken from you. A recession can't take success from you. It can't take away your accomplishments. But if, if you define success by relationship with God and just following him, they can arrest you and put you in prison unjustly. And you can still prosper and you can become the head of the prison and you can go around and minister to people and prophesy and see miracles happen and things happen because success is just knowing God. You know, I had a woman that was in Huntsville prison and she was in for murder. Did I tell this last night? I did. I don't think I finished the story. I never finished that. I remember now I started telling this story and I didn't finish it. But anyway, this woman was in prison for murder and uh, she had gotten born again in prison and she was now saved, but she was just praying every day, God, take me home because she was in solitary confinement. She couldn't even witness to the uh, jailers and stuff like this. And there was just no, there was nobody she could touch. 
She was a drain on society. It was costing money to keep her alive. And she had just been praying for years. God, let me die. Take me home so that I can, uh, you know, be with him. She, she knew the Lord. She was born again. And she heard me talking along these lines and talking about, uh, you know, uh, Arthur was talking about this this morning, about everlasting life. And I've got a teaching entitled Eternal Life, that it's not just living forever in eternity. It's a quality of relationship with God. It's knowing God. And I talked about blessing the Lord and how that when you praise him, he gets blessed, that he inhabits the praises of his people, that he rejoices over us with joy and all of these things. And I was teaching on this. She heard me on the radio. This has been 25 or 30 years ago. And she heard me on the radio and she wrote me a letter and told me how that she had murdered people and how bad her life was. Her family had, had totally separated from her. Nobody would ever come see her. She had hurt other people's family. And, uh, you know, she just caused nothing but problems. And she'd been praying that she could die and go to be with the Lord. But she says, now I understand that I can have a relationship with God and God inhabits my praises. God loves me. And this woman didn't have anything that she could do for anybody. She was just a drain on everybody. But she says, now they can't shut me up. She says, man, it's no problem in solitary confinement facing execution. She says, man, I am freer than I have ever been in my life. And it, she was writing this, this is 25 or 30 years ago. We didn't have computers and stuff like that. She was writing it in longhand in ink and you could see where she'd been crying and her tears had made the ink run. And this woman was just praising God and she says, I'm free. She says, man, I'm fellowshipping with God. She says, every day is awesome. And I was thinking that woman is freer than most of us have ever known freedom. And it's all because of relationship with God. I'm telling you that's success brothers. And if you do that, and you establish relationship as God works on your heart and you get to where you are full of God, man, God is going to open up doors for you and help you to be a blessing because he wants to use us to bless other people. But the Lord isn't as quick to cause success in your life if what you are going to give other people isn't any good. So we just ought to focus on the Lord and let him work in our life. And, you know, here's another example. Second Kings chapter 5. Uh, this is an example of Naaman and he was a mighty captain of the king of Syria and he had won many, many uh, battles. Look at this in 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1 says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but look at this, but he was a leper. You know, there's a butt in everybody's life. Everybody's got a butt. <laughs> you can take that any way you want. He had all of these things. According to man's, uh, you know, evaluation, he was a success, but he was a leper. You know, I don't care who you are. One of the, one of the things that I like about these kind of meetings, and we have a ministers conference. Oh, I wanted to make this announcement too, because we have a lot of ministers here, but, uh, our upcoming ministers conference in October, we're going to have Creflo Dollar with us and also, uh, Dwayne Sheriff and then Bob Yandian and Bob Nichols and myself. It's a little different format. It's going to be awesome. 
So you need to be here in October for our minister's conference. But one of the reasons I started a minister's conference was because I'd go to these minister's conference and they would sit you according to your importance. And they would put the most important people at the front, not be way at the back and stuff. And then you'd go up to meet somebody and they'd say, hey, I've got a church of 5,000, 10,000. I've got all. And it was just comparing. And it was sickening. You know, you leave there disappointed and discouraged because you don't measure up. And one of the reasons I started my own minister's conference is that we have everybody dressed like this. And you can wear a three-piece suit if you want to, but you'll be out of place. I mean, nobody's going to, you know, reject you over it, but you just come and we don't have any uh, thing that establishes who's the most important. And we just come to know each other on the basis of our relationship with the Lord and not all of these external things. But see, most people, it's all based on what the world calls success. And even the church gets caught up in this. And so here's Naaman, a man who was very successful, but... He was a leper and all of his money couldn't buy him healing. All of his money couldn't buy him peace. And I can guarantee you, whoever you are, we don't have labels on who's the most important in here. We're all important to God. And I tell you, the person in here that's the greatest success is the person in here who loves the Lord and has heard from the Lord and is following the Lord. That is a tremendously blessed and successful person. But Naaman was a person that had it all in the natural, but didn't have anything really, because you can't buy your health. You can't buy peace. You can't buy contentment. You can't buy a good marriage. And those things come through just knowing God. And so he was a leper. And in the next verse, this is 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 2. It says, and the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, thus and thus said the little maid that is of the land of Israel. And the story goes on that they brought this to Naaman. Naaman wound up going to see Elisha and Elisha told him to go to the pool I mean, to the uh, river Jordan and dipped seven times. And Naaman got really offended because he was an important man. And I mean, people used to, you know, bow the knee when he came by and he was used to all of these things. And Elijah didn't even come out and see him. He sent a messenger out and said, go tell him to dip seven times. And he got offended. And he says, I thought that surely he'd come out and wave his hand over me and call on the name of a of his God and do something powerful. And he got mad and left that head home. And his guys said, look, if he had commanded you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? How much more if he tells you just to go dip seven times? And so he went down to the Jordan and dipped seven times. I believe on the sixth time, there wasn't one bit of change. But on the seventh time he dipped and he came up and he was completely healed. And now he was completely humbled. Now he, he, he was a different man and he went back and this time Elisha came out and met him. It wasn't that Elisha was trying to be hard on him. Elisha was just trying not to stroke this man's ego. You know, it says in uh, John chapter five, verse 44, how can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God alone? If you are a man pleaser, if you are seeking... <laughs> 
Boy, this fits perfectly with what I'm talking about, about being success. And if you are judging success by the acclaim that everybody else gives you, and if you are dependent upon that and wanting everybody's recognition, it's a faith killer. You cannot believe that are seeking the honor that is coming from men and not the honor that comes from God alone. You know, one of the things about being a living sacrifice is that when you really commit your life to the Lord and you love him above anything else, you don't care what other people have to say about you because you have his acceptance. And that is so powerful that it just doesn't matter. You know, it's not that I don't care about people, but compared to God, you're nobody. And if you reject me and criticize and talk about me, I'm not going to like it. It doesn't bless me when I have people say things, but you know what? Compared to God, you're nothing. I had a guy come up one time, just go to reaming me out and all of this stuff. And I just stopped him and I said, Hey, who died and made you God? And he says, what do you mean? I said, who are you? And he started telling me, I said, you're nobody. And he got really offended. How, How dare you say, I said, you're nobody. I don't care about what you think. Who cares about what you think? I said, God Almighty loves me. And if God loves me compared to God, you're nobody. And that's the way that I sleep good at night. I've got hundreds of blogs written about me, about what a terrible person I am. And you know what? It doesn't keep me up at night because they, you know, (laughs) I don't answer to them. If you are seeking the honor that comes from man, it's a faith killer. And this is the reason that Elisha treated him the way that he did. But anyway, all of that story and this healing of Naaman, which I can guarantee you, Naaman served God from that time on. And he was a man of influence. He was in a position of influence and he influenced many, many, many people. And all of those things happened because a servant girl, a little girl who had been conquered The Syrians went into Israel and conquered and probably killed her family and took her captive. And she was a slave. All of this miracle that warranted being written down in scripture and recorded in the Bible happened because a little girl knew God, believed that God could heal uh, leprosy and do all of these things. And this little girl in captivity stood up and spoke you know what? She was a success. She was a small person in the eyes of most people, but you know what? It was a success. And this mighty man who was over all of the armies of Syria, got healed because of a little girl and what she did. People don't record that, but I think God's going to record things a lot differently than what people do. And here's another example over in second Kings chapter seven. I love this example about the four lepers that were sitting at the gate of Samaria and there was a famine because the Syrians had totally surrounded Samaria. Nothing could get in or out. And they were actually eating animals dung and selling it for expensive prices. And they were actually, these two women had decided that they were going to kill their own babies and eat them. So one day they killed one of their babies and cannibalized their own child. The next day they went to eat the other child and the woman hid the child. And anyway, this brought it to the king's attention and it caused all of this problem. And these four lepers were sitting outside of the gate. They were outcast. They weren't even allowed in the city. They were outside of the gate and they were starving. I guarantee you the lepers were the last one in the food chain. If anybody got food, it wasn't going to be these four lepers. 
And finally, these four lepers uh, said, it says there were four leprous men at the entering end of the gate. And they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now, therefore, come and let us fall under the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. <laughs> I love that. That is awesome reasoning. But these guys said, what are we going to do? If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city, we're going to die. If we go out to the Syrians, they're probably going to kill us. But that's the only option that we've got. That's the only one that doesn't guarantee that we're going to die. And so they said, let's go out to the Syrians. And if they kill us, all we're going to do is die. And so they went out and the story goes that the Lord made the Syrians hear this sound like there was an army coming and they thought that the Israelites had hired the Egyptians to come against them. And so they fled. I mean, in panic, they left their fires going, their food was still being cooked. They left their animals there. They left all of their gold, their silver. And these four leprous men who had been dying of starvation and were absolute outcasts went into the Syrian camp and nobody was there. They went in and started eating Man, they had been starving. Now they were filled to the max. They started getting gold and silver and they went and dug holes and hid it. They took all of the raiment that they wanted. These people who were outcasts became filthy, stinking, dirty, rich. They became satisfied and they went back to the city of Samaria and told them what had happened. They went out and checked and they became the heroes. They went from zeros to heroes overnight. And you know what? They had, they had a relationship with the Lord. You can see that because later, I forget which verse it is, when they were there, they said, you know, we aren't doing well. Our city's in trouble and we are, aren't sharing it. If we keep this to ourselves, surely mischief is going to follow. It showed that they had an accountability to God. They realized, you know, that they had a purpose. And these people were not the people that we would look at. But you know what? In the eyes of all of those people, in the eyes of God, they were a success. I tell you, we just evaluate things so weird. So I think one of the things I want to accomplish with this is just to share with you that you may not be the type of person that gets a lot of recognition from people, but that doesn't mean that you aren't a success. A success is a person that has a good, vibrant relationship with God and is just doing what God has called you to do. And if God hasn't called you to be the president of the United States, the president of a company to do something awesome, but you're doing what he called you to do, you're a success. If you're a Gene Price, my Sunday school teacher, or a Charles Collins, my youth director that made a difference in my life and kept me from ever going through a period of rebellion and kept me seeking the Lord and stuff, you know what? That's a success. They were there where God put them and it made a difference in my life. And as a result, that's touching the lives of millions and millions of people today. That's a success. We need to reevaluate things differently. John the Baptist wouldn't be considered a success by a lot of people's standards. John the Baptist for 30 years was just in the wilderness being prepared. He never did anything in the natural, but then he went and started preaching in the desert. He didn't go to where all the people were. He just was in the desert and he started preaching and God started bringing the multitudes. And in six months time, 
John the Baptist changed an entire nation and not only the nation of Israel, but all of the nations around him. But because of his preaching and because he spoke out against the king, Mary and his sister-in-law, they put him in prison and John rotted in prison for I don't know how long. But in uh, Matthew chapter 11, you can read about it. And John's faith began to falter. He sent messengers to Jesus and he says, are you the one that should come or do we look for another? His whole life was based on Jesus being the one. He had proclaimed it and done all of these things. And yet he began to waver in his faith and eventually he was beheaded because of the king's lust for his own uh, daughter. He saw her dance and says, I'll give you anything to half of the kingdom. And he made an oath and she says, I want John the Baptist head. And so... He went and cut off John the Baptist's head. And John died in prison, shut up, muzzled. He couldn't do what God told him to do. Did you know a lot of people would look at that as a failure? And yet Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Man, that is awesome. Can you find that? Verse 11, verily, verily, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. But look at this, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did you know if you are the least person in this room, you're greater than John the Baptist, who Jesus said John the Baptist was greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than any of these things. You know, John the Baptist didn't have as big a ministry as Jesus. John, the Pharisees played on his emotions and tried to get him into strife with Jesus by saying, haven't you heard that Jesus is baptizing more people than you ever did? But John, again, see, wasn't looking at just the size of his ministry and things like this to evaluate whether he was doing the right thing. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to bend over and undo the sandals on his feet. That's one of the things that made him a great man in the sight of God was that he didn't try and, and do something that he wasn't called to do. You know, if you start talking about success in most venues, if you do, and I'm talking about even Christian things, if you go to a seminar or something where they're talking about success, I guarantee you it's going to be talked about, about how much you can do, the bigger is better, and the more influence and all of these things. But I think one of the things that set John the Baptist apart was he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he was willing to humble himself and promote things. You know, one of the things, again, I'm not saying this to toot our own horn, but just to uh, uh, illustrate what we're talking about. But one of the things that makes the blessing of God work in this ministry on CBC and our ministry is that nobody here is competing with anybody else. And I've had a number of our instructors that have taught in other schools say that this is the difference is because you know what? We aren't trying to compete with each other, man. We're lifting each other up. And if Greg Moore can teach better than I can, praise God, have at it, Greg. We're just wanting to minister to the people. Doesn't matter who gets credit for it. Nobody here is trying to get credit for a thing. It's not about who has the biggest thing, who has the most influence. It's all about Jesus. We're just trying to uplift him. And if God taps Arthur on the shoulder and wants Arthur to minister, well, then that's just fine. Praise God. And I'm telling you, there is a blessing on that. 
There is an anointing that rests when Jesus is the one that we're trying to promote and not a person. Success is just knowing God and doing what God tells you to do. And if God tells you to sit down and shut up and let somebody else have the opportunity and you do it, you're a success. And you know what? I, I've, I mentioned that, you know, people like Arthur's teaching better than mine. And then Barry's better than mine. And then Greg's better than mine and stuff. And people say, does that bother you? I say, no, because you know what? I'm the one who invited all of them to minister here. I get credit. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. Man, if those people do a better job than me, that's just awesome. And so praise God. It's, I'm telling you, brothers, it's not about who you are and all of the stuff that you can do. It's about who do you know and are you following God's leadership? Can you look at the things in your life and say, this is what God told me to do? Or is it you trying to get God to bless something? And praise God, I'm telling you, success is when you just come to know the Lord and submit yourself unto him. Let me give you some examples of people who in the natural seem to have it all together, but they were absolute failures. Saul, the king of Israel, was one of those. Saul started off small and he started off humble so much so that when they went to anoint him, he actually was hiding and they had to get a word from God and find out where he was. First Samuel chapter 10. But... In the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, he had rebelled at God. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, then God promoted you. But now that you are operating in pride and arrogancy, God has taken the kingdom away from you and given it to another, one of your neighbors that is better than you. And Saul failed big time. Saul wound up having an evil spirit that tormented him and the guy, he was the king of all Israel, the very first king. He had all of these riches. He had all of these people that were submitted unto him. And yet he was tormented by an evil spirit. In the end, he went to a witch and consulted with a witch right before his death. And not only did Saul die, but Jonathan, his son died. And Jonathan was a super, super godly person that would have made a wonderful king. But he died because of his association with his father and all of his other sons except one died in the battle. And Saul was a guy who had great potential. Most people look at him as kind of just a placeholder. He was a fill-in until David could come along. But if you read in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, Samuel was prophesying to Saul and he says, you've done foolishly because if you would have obeyed God today, He says, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord, thy God, which he commanded thee for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Did you know David wasn't God's first choice? Saul was. Saul had this great potential and God raised Saul up. We would have been singing about the sure mercies of Saul. We would have never heard of David. Saul was God's first choice, but he blew it and he says, That now, uh, the next verse says in verse 14, 1 Samuel 13, 14, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. He, Saul went into doing his own thing. And you know why? I hadn't got time to teach on Saul, but Saul was a very insecure person that was constantly wondering about what everybody thought about him. You know what the antidote for that is? 
It's what we've been talking about. You just make a commitment of your life to the Lord. You fall in love with the Lord and you ever start feeling God's pleasure and His acceptance, it will satisfy you so much that it doesn't matter who rejects you. That is the antidote to insecurity. I was an introvert that couldn't look at a person in the face when I was a kid. People would say hi to me on the street and they'd be two blocks down the street with me sitting in my car before I'd go hi. I couldn't talk to people. I couldn't look at a person in the face. I couldn't look you eyeball to eyeball. And you know what changed? God filled me with his love and I fell so in love with God that I was so satisfied that I absolutely lost my fear of other people rejecting me. That's what timidity, shyness is all about. It's not in your genes It's not just your DNA that makes you that way. You're afraid of rejection. You're afraid of people. You're afraid to open up. And when you find out how much God loves you and that the only one who has a right to criticize you loves you unconditionally and will never change, you lose your fear of what people have to say. And it just literally set me free. That's awesome. And Saul was a person that was constantly worried. Even when Samuel said in the 15th chapter that God has rent the kingdom from you, Saul fell on the ground and said, doesn't matter, just turn and worship with me so that the people will see that you're still backing me. He was still worried about the people. Even though God Almighty had just rejected him and he had just pronounced a death sentence upon him and all of his kids, he said, that doesn't matter, just make me look good in the sight of the people. That's terrible. And that's the reason that that man failed. He had everything in the natural that the world would have called success, but he did not have a good relationship with God. And he was more seeking the approval of man than he was seeking the approval of God. And because of it, he failed. Solomon is another great example of this. Solomon's a guy who started out good and he had two visions from the Lord. And God spoke to him. And in the beginning, God said, I'll give you anything you want. He didn't put any qualifications on it. But Solomon said, I want wisdom because I'm just a child. I don't know how to judge your people. Would you give me wisdom? And God was so pleased. He says, I'm not only going to make you the wisest man that has ever lived, but I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you gold and silver and fame and long life and victory over your enemies and all of the things that you didn't ask for. And Solomon started out really good, but then... He, it says in, uh, I think it's first, second King, or first Kings chapter 11, verse 3, 6, somewhere around there. It says, but Solomon loved many strange women. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. And because of this, Solomon went out and started building uh, altars to demon gods and worshiping them. And because of it, Solomon lost everything. He was a failure. And most people think, man, how could you say he was a failure? It's, you know, over in Chronicles, if you read this in Kings, it just says he was the richest man. And, he, and you could interpret that as he was the richest man of his day. But over in the corresponding scripture in Chronicles where it reports this, it says there, will, there has never been anyone before you so rich, nor will there ever arise another person as rich as Solomon. Solomon was richer than any person that we have ever seen or heard of today. They took silver in his days and threw it on the ground and walked on it as stones because silver wasn't worth anything. 
They were so prosperous, they only used gold. Silver was useless. He was the most prosperous man that the world has ever seen. He had all of these things going for him. And yet, because his personal relationship with God failed, this man was a failure. Solomon was a failure. Solomon wrote much of the Bible, and yet he's a failure. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it is one of the most depressing books in the Bible. I've actually struggled at times to wonder, God, is this really supposed to be in there? But I think the purpose of it is to show you a person who he says he gave himself over to all of the flesh and tried to define success in all of these worldly things. And it's just showing you the vanity of ever trying to find uh, happiness and success outside of God. And it has value for that purpose. I believe that that's the reason it's included in there. But you know what? He was an absolute failure. Boy, here's another one is uh, Uzziah. And um, that's Second Chronicles chapter 26. And in verse 5, and it says, And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. And again, here see this relationship with the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Most people look at this prosperity and think that that's true success. But no, the true success was a relationship with the Lord. But when Zechariah died, then Uzziah turned away and he actually got lifted up with pride so much that he went into the temple and he was the king and the king could not enter into the temple and offer sacrifices. But he stepped over the line and he went to offering sacrifices himself. The priest told him not to do it, but he did it. And God smoked the man with leprosy and he died a leper. And in the world standard, he was the most popular man in the nation. He was the king. He was all of these things, but he failed because of his relationship with the Lord. And I'm telling you, brothers, that success is not all of these things out here. It's just knowing God and following God. And even if you have all of the things that the world calls success, and if you do not have just an outstanding relationship with God, it's just a matter of time till you fail. And some of you may not think that that's encouraging, but it really is. I'm trying to turn you away from your own ways and let you realize that there's a better way to do it. And it's better to learn it now than it is to wait until you crash and burn and all of a sudden come to this revelation. I had a friend of mine come to me one time and he, um, he, we'd been friends for a long time and he started this business in Colorado Springs and some things had happened and it looked like he was going to lose it. He was having heart problems because his heart was racing. He was under so much stress and he came to me and we were actually starting a service at the Bible college and he came in crying and I left and just told him to keep singing because uh, I, he was a friend and I needed to help him. And he was just crying and telling me that he's losing everything. They're going to repossess his house. He's losing his health. The doctor says he could have a heart attack and die. And he was just crying and all of these things. And I looked at him and I said, Tim, that's wonderful. And he just looked at me like, why would you say this is wonderful? And I said, you know what? Because you finally are coming to the end of yourself. I said, you are just a strong person. He was an ex-cop and he's one of these guys that just took control and boy, he could handle any situation. And he had finally come to a place to realize, you know what? I'm not, it's not working. I need help. And the guy was sitting there crying. And I said, this is the best thing that's ever happened to you. I said, now you got no way to look, but up. 
And you know, God opened up his heart. I prayed with him and that's now been 15 years and the guy is just prosperous in the world standard. He's doing good. It turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to him and it worked out for good. And I'm telling you, brothers, it's not about all of these external things. It's about your personal relationship with God. When it comes to the end of your life, you aren't going to wish that you had a bigger house, a bigger car, that you'd have had more fame. It's all going to be about your personal relationship with God and about how you treated people. And that's a success. And if you are loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and if you are loving other people as yourself, you are a success. That's what God calls being a success. Amen. I'm out of time. I'm not out of stuff to say, but I'm out of time. Amen. And so we will continue this. And so don't forget where we are. We'll plug back in again and go through this. Thank you, Jesus. So Father, we love you and we just want to give you our praise. We want to give you our lives. Father, help every one of us to redefine ourselves. And to let it all be about our relationship with you. Let him that glories, glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That's what you said. And Father, that's what we want to do is to be focused on you. And it all be about you. And not about us. And not about what we can do or what we can get. Father, I pray that you just instill this in the hearts of these men. And that we leave this place with a deeper love and relationship with you, which will ultimately end in success. And Father, we thank you for that in Jesus' name.